We continue with Justice Sotomayor's dissenting opinion in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard College. Beginning with Part 3 of the Opinion. Part 3. The court concludes that Harvard's and UNC's policies are unconstitutional because they serve objectives that are insufficiently measurable, employ racial categories that are imprecise and overbroad, rely on racial stereotypes and disadvantage minority groups, and do not have an endpoint. In reaching this conclusion, the court claims that those supposed issues with respondents' programs render the programs insufficiently narrow under the strict scrutiny framework that the court's precedents command. In reality, however, the court today cuts through the kudzu and overrules its higher education precedents following Baki. There is no better evidence that the court is overruling the court's precedents than those precedents themselves. Every one of the arguments made by the majority can be found in the dissenting opinions filed in the cases the majority now overrules. Lost arguments are not grounds to overrule a case. When proponents of those arguments, greater now in number on the court, return to fight old battles anew, it betrays an unrestrained disregard for precedent. It fosters the people's suspicions that bedrock principles are founded in the proclivities of individuals on this court, not in the law, and it degrades the integrity of our constitutional system of government. Nowhere is the damage greater than in cases like these that touch upon matters of representation and institutional legitimacy. The court offers no justification, much less a special justification for its costly endeavor. Nor could it. There is no basis for overruling Bakke, Gruder, and Fisher. The court's precedents were correctly decided. The opinion today is not workable and creates serious equal protection problems. Important reliance interests favor respondents, and there are no legal factual developments favoring the court's reckless course. At bottom, the six unelected members of today's majority upend the status quo based on their policy preferences about what race in America should be like, but is not, and their preferences for a veneer of colorblindness in a society where race has always mattered and continues to matter in fact and in law. Section A. 1. A limited use for race in college admissions is consistent with the 14th Amendment and this court's broader equal protection jurisprudence. The text and history of the 14th Amendment make clear that the Equal Protection Clause permits race-conscious measures. Consistent with that view, the court has explicitly held that race-based action is sometimes within constitutional constraints. The court has thus upheld the use of race in a variety of contexts. Tellingly, in sharp contrast with today's decision, the court has allowed the use of race when that use burdens minority populations. In United States v. Brignoni Ponce, 1975, for example, 
the court held that it is unconstitutional for Border Patrol agents to rely on a person's skin color as a single factor to justify a traffic stop based on reasonable suspicion. But it remarked that Mexican appearance could be a relevant factor out of many to justify such a stop at the border and its functional equivalents. The court thus facilitated racial profiling of Latinos as a law enforcement tool and did not adopt a race-blind rule. The court later extended this reasoning to Border Patrol agents, selectively referring motorists for secondary inspection at checkpoint, concluding that even if it assumed that such referrals are made largely on the basis of apparent Mexican ancestry, there is no constitutional violation. The result of today's decision is that a person's skin color may play a role in assessing individualized suspicion, but it cannot play a role in assessing that person's individualized contributions to a diverse learning environment. That indefensible reading of the Constitution is not grounded in law and subverts the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection. 2. The majority does not dispute that some uses of race are constitutionally permissible. Indeed, it agrees that a limited use of race is permissible in some college admissions programs. In a footnote, the court exempts military academies from its ruling in light of the potentially distinct interests they may present. To the extent the court suggests national security interests are distinct, Those interests cannot explain the court's narrow exemption, as national security interests are also implicated at civilian universities. The court also attempts to justify its carve-out based on the fact that no military academy is a party to these cases. Yet the same can be said of many other institutions that are not parties here, including the religious universities supporting respondents, which the court does not similarly exempt from its sweeping opinion. The court's carve-out only highlights the arbitrariness of its decision and further proves that the 14th Amendment does not categorically prohibit the use of race in college admissions. The concurring opinions also agree that the Constitution tolerates some racial classifications— Justice Gorsuch agrees with the majority's conclusion that racial classifications are constitutionally permissible if they advance a compelling interest in a narrowly tailored way. Justice Kavanaugh, too, agrees that the Constitution permits the use of race if it survives strict scrutiny. Justice Thomas offers an originalist defense of the colorblind Constitution— but his historical analysis leads to the inevitable conclusion that the Constitution is not, in fact, colorblind. Like the majority opinion, Justice Thomas agrees that race can be used to remedy past discrimination and to equalize treatment against a concrete baseline of government-imposed inequality. He also argues that race can be used if it satisfies strict scrutiny more broadly, and he considers compelling interests those that prevent anarchy, curb violence, and segregate prisoners. Thus, although Justice Thomas at times suggests that the Constitution only permits directly remedial measures, 
that benefit identified victims of discrimination. He agrees that the Constitution tolerates a much wider range of race-conscious measures. In the end, when the court speaks of a colorblind Constitution, it cannot really mean it, for it is faced with a body of law that recognizes the race-conscious measures are permissible under the Equal Protection Clause. Instead, what the court actually lands on is an understanding of the Constitution that is colorblind, sometimes, when the court so chooses. Behind those choices lie the court's own value judgments about what type of interests are sufficiently compelling to justify race-conscious measures. Overruling decades of precedent, today's newly constituted court singles out the limited use of race in holistic college admissions. It strikes at the heart of Bakke, Gruder, and Fisher by holding that racial diversity is an inescapably imponderable objective that cannot justify race-conscious affirmative action. Even though respondents' objectives simply mirror the compelling interest this court has approved many times in the past. At bottom, without any new factual or legal justification, the court overrides its long-standing holding that diversity in higher education is of compelling value. To avoid public accountability for its choice, the court seeks cover behind a unique measurability requirement of its own creation— None of this court's precedents, however, requires that a compelling interest meet some threshold level of precision to be deemed sufficiently compelling. In fact, this court has recognized as compelling plenty of interests that are equally or more amorphous, including the intangible interest in preserving public confidence in judicial integrity, an interest that does not easily reduce to precise definition. Thus, although the members of this majority pay lip service to respondents' commendable and worthy racial diversity goals, they make a clear value judgment today. Racial integration in higher education is not sufficiently important to them. Today, the proclivities of individuals rule. The majority offers no response to any of this. Instead, it attacks a straw man, arguing that the court's cases recognize that remedying the effects of societal discrimination does not constitute a compelling interest. Yet, as the majority acknowledges, while Bakke rejected that interest as insufficiently compelling, it upheld a limited use of race in college admissions to promote the educational benefits that flow from diversity. It is that narrower interest which the court has reaffirmed numerous times since Bakke, and as recently as 2016 in Fisher II, that the court overrules today. Section B. The court's precedents authorizing a limited use of race in college admissions are not just workable, they have been working. Lower courts have consistently applied them without issue, as exemplified in the opinions below, and SFFAs and the court's inability to identify any split of authority. Today, the court replaces this settled framework with a set of novel restraints that create troubling equal protection problems and share one common purpose, to make it impossible to use race in a holistic way in college admissions, where it is much needed.
1. The court argues that Harvard's and UNC's programs must end because they unfairly disadvantage some racial groups. According to the court, college admissions are a zero-sum game, and respondents' use of race unfairly advantages underrepresented minority students at the expense of other students. That is not the role race plays in holistic admissions. Consistent with the court's precedents, respondents' holistic review policies consider race in a very limited way. Race is only one factor out of many. That type of system allows Harvard and UNC to assemble a diverse class on a multitude of dimensions. Respondents' policies allow them to select students with various unique attributes, including talented athletes, artists, scientists, and musicians. They also allow respondents to assemble a class with diverse viewpoints, including students who have different political ideologies and academic interests, who have struggled with different types of disabilities, who are from various socioeconomic backgrounds, who understand different ways of life in various parts of the country, and yes, students who self-identify with various racial backgrounds and who can offer different perspectives because of that identity. That type of multidimensional system benefits all students. In fact, racial groups that are not underrepresented tend to benefit disproportionately from such a system. Harvard's holistic system, for example, provides points to applicants who qualify as ALDC, meaning athletes, legacy applicants, applicants on the dean's interest list, primarily relatives of donors, and children of faculty or staff. ALDC applicants are predominantly white, around 67.8% are white. 11.4% are Asian Americans, 6% are Black, and 5.6% are Latino. By contrast, only 40.3% of non-ALDC applicants are white. 28.3% are Asian American, 11% are Black, and 12.6% are Latino. Although ALDC applicants make up less than 5% of applicants to Harvard, They constitute around 30% of the applicants admitted each year. Similarly, because of achievement gaps that result from entrenched racial inequality in K-12 education, a heavy emphasis on grades and standardized test scores disproportionately disadvantages underrepresented racial minorities. Stated simply, race is one small piece of a much larger admissions puzzle, where most of the pieces disfavor underrepresented racial minorities. That is precisely why underrepresented racial minorities remain underrepresented. The court's suggestion that an already advantaged racial group is disadvantaged because of a limited use of race is a myth. The majority's true objection appears to be that a limited use of race in college admissions does in fact achieve what it is designed to achieve. It helps equalize opportunity and advances respondents' objectives by increasing the number of underrepresented racial minorities on college campuses, 
particularly Black and Latino students. This is unacceptable, the court says, because racial groups that are not underrepresented would be admitted in greater numbers without these policies. Reduced to its simplest terms, the court's conclusion is that an increase in the representation of racial minorities at institutions of higher learning that were historically reserved for white Americans is an unfair and repugnant outcome that offends the Equal Protection Clause. It provides a license to discriminate against white Americans, the court says, which requires the courts and state actors to pick the right races to benefit. Nothing in the 14th Amendment or its history supports the court's shocking proposition, which echoes arguments made by opponents of Reconstruction-era laws and this court's decision in Brown. In a society where opportunity is dispensed along racial lines, racial equality cannot be achieved without making room for underrepresented groups that, for far too long, were denied admission through the force of law, including at Harvard and UNC. Quite the opposite, a racially integrated vision of society in which institutions reflect all sectors of the American public and where the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners are able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood is precisely what the Equal Protection Clause commands. It is essential if the dream of one nation, indivisible, is to be realized. By singling out race, the court imposes a special burden on racial minorities for whom race is a crucial component of their identity. Holistic admissions require truly individualized consideration of the whole person, Yet, by foreclosing racial considerations, colorblindness denies those who racially self-identify the full expression of their identity and treats racial identity as inferior among all other forms of social identity. The court's approach thus turns the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Guarantee on its head and creates an equal protection problem of its own. There is no question that minority students will bear the burden of today's decision. Students of color testified at trial that racial self-identification was an important component of their application because without it, they would not be able to present a full version of themselves. For example, Ramel Mwamba, a black UNC alumna, testified that it was really important that UNC see who she is holistically, and how the color of her skin and the texture of her hair impacted her upbringing. Itzel Vasquez Rodriguez, who identifies as Mexican-American of Cora descent, testified that her ethno-racial identity is a core piece of who she is and has impacted every experience she has had, such that she could not explain her potential contributions to Harvard without any reference to it. Sally Chen, a Harvard alumna who identifies as Chinese-American, explained that being the child of Chinese immigrants was really fundamental to explaining who she is. Tong Deep, a Harvard alumnus, testified that his Vietnamese identity 
was such a big part of himself that he needed to discuss it in his application. And Sarah Cole, a black Harvard alumna, emphasized that to try to not see her race is to try to not see her, simply because there is no part of her experience, no part of her journey, no part of her life that has been untouched by her race. In a single paragraph at the end of its lengthy opinion, the court suggests that nothing in today's opinion prohibits universities from considering a student's essay that explains how race affected that student's life. This supposed recognition that universities can, in some situations, consider race in application essays is nothing but an attempt to put lipstick on a pig. The court's opinion circumscribes universities' ability to consider race in any form by meticulously gutting respondents' asserted diversity interests. Yet because the court cannot escape the inevitable truth that race matters in students' lives, it announces a false promise to save face and appear attuned to reality. No one is fooled. Further, the courts demand that a student's discussion of racial self-identification be tied to individual qualities, such as courage, leadership, unique ability, and determination, only serves to perpetuate the false narrative that Harvard and UNC currently provide preferences on the basis of race alone. The court's precedents already require that universities take race into account holistically, in a limited way, and based on the type of individualized and flexible assessment that the court purports to favor. After extensive discovery and two lengthy trials, neither SFFA nor the majority can point to a single example of an underrepresented racial minority who was admitted to Harvard or UNC on the basis of race alone. In the end, the court merely imposes its preferred college application format on the nation, not acting as a court of law applying precedent, but taking on the role of college administrators to decide what is better for society. The court's course reflects its inability to recognize that racial identity informs some students' viewpoints and experiences in unique ways. The court goes as far as to claim that Bakke's recognition that black Americans can offer different perspectives than white people amounts to a stereotype. It is not a stereotype to acknowledge the basic truth that young people's experiences are shaded by a societal structure where race matters. Acknowledging that there is something special about a student of color who graduates valedictorian from a predominantly white school is not a stereotype. Nor is it a stereotype to acknowledge that race imposes certain burdens on students of color that it does not impose on white students. For generations, black and brown parents have given their children the talk, instructing them never to run down the street, always keep your hands where they can be seen, do not even think of talking back to a stranger, all out of fear of how an officer with a gun will react to them. 
Those conversations occur regardless of socioeconomic background or any other aspect of a student's self-identification. They occur because of race. As Andrew Brennan, a UNC alumnus, testified, running down the neighborhood, people don't see him as someone that is relatively affluent. They see him as a black man. The absence of racial diversity, by contrast, actually contributes to stereotyping. Diminishing the force of such stereotypes is both a crucial part of respondents' mission and one that they cannot accomplish with only token numbers of minority students. When there is an increase in underrepresented minority students on campus, racial stereotypes lose their force because diversity allows students to learn there is no minority viewpoint, but rather a variety of viewpoints among minority students. By preventing respondents from achieving their diversity objectives, it is the court's opinion that facilitates stereotyping on American college campuses. To be clear, today's decision leaves intact holistic college admissions and recruitment efforts that seek to enroll diverse classes without using racial classifications. Universities should continue to use those tools as best they can to recruit and admit students from different backgrounds based on all the other factors the court's opinion does not and cannot touch. Colleges and universities can continue to consider socioeconomic diversity and to recruit and enroll students who are first-generation college applicants or who speak multiple languages, for example. Those factors are not interchangeable with race. At SFFA's own urging, those efforts remain constitutionally permissible. The court today also does not adopt SFFA's suggestion that college admissions should be a function of academic metrics alone. Using class rank or standardized test scores as the only admissions criteria would severely undermine multidimensional diversity in higher education. Such a system would exclude the star athlete or musician whose grades suffered because of daily practices and training. It would exclude a talented young biologist who struggled to maintain above-average grades in humanities classes. And it would exclude a student whose freshman year grades were poor because of a family crisis, but who got herself back on track in her last three years of school, only to find herself just outside of the top decile of her class. A myopic focus on academic ratings does not lead to a diverse student body. We've come to the end of another segment of this opinion. Now, at just under 70 pages, it's quite a bit longer than most. So if you've made it this far, congratulations. Next episode, I'll be reading the final 19 pages. So hang in there. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.